Merry day after Christmas to everybody. Hope you all had a blessed Christmas, and God is good, isn't he? All right, well, can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, turn to chapter 4. We are currently in a section in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, a section we've entitled, Jesus Prepares for Ministry. And as we've been looking at this, we have said it revolves around three key events. The baptism in the Jordan, the temptation in the wilderness, and the announcement in Nazareth. Now, we've already looked at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River and the temptation by Satan in the wilderness. So this morning, we want to turn our attention to that third key event in Jesus' preparation to begin his public ministry, which, of course, is the announcement in Nazareth. Now, for this, I just want you to look at verse 12, which says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus did not officially begin his public ministry. Really, it's his Galilean ministry, but his Galilean ministry was the bulk of his ministry. So I look at the Galilean ministry as really the official start of his ministry. Even though he had been ministering a little bit in Judea, uh, he did not officially begin his public ministry, really, until he went up into the Galilee and began it there. Now, we read from all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he did not begin this public ministry officially until John had been put into prison, John the Baptist. And the reason for John's imprisonment is not mentioned here, but later in chapter 14, verse 3, Matthew does give us the reason. He said, For Herod had laid hold on of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now we'll get into more about that when we get there, but just so you know, Herod went up to visit his brother Philip, fell for Philip's wife Herodias, lured her away from him, married her, and then came down back down to Galilee. Well, John was ministering in Galilee, and John called him out publicly and said, that was not lawful for you to do. And, of course, Herodias was not crazy about that. And so she worked in her husband's heart, and they wound up imprisoning John. That's what's going on here. But just so you understand something, even though Jesus' public ministry officially didn't begin until he went up into the Galilee, as I said, he already had begun kind of a, a prelude to his ministry down in Judea. And we read here that, Jesus and John, we know from the Gospels that the ministries of Jesus and John did overlap for a while before John was put into prison. We know that between verses 11 and 12 of Matthew's Gospel, or in other words, between the time that Jesus' temptation by Satan ended in the wilderness and the time John was placed in prison, you have a whole section where their ministries overlap. You can read about this overlap in John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting at verse 19, running through chapter 3, verse 36, if you're interested, all right? Now, again, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, listen, and leaving Nazareth, Nazareth was in Galilee, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. So Matthew tells us that after John was imprisoned, Jesus went north into Galilee and stayed in Nazareth for a time before moving to Capernaum. What Jesus did while he was in Nazareth, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke does. Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. 
And this is really getting at the heart of what we're talking about this morning. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 16, it says, And so he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. The scroll, actually, is the idea. And when he had opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, as you read the Gospels, you will realize that they contain three great announcements. Two of them are declared about Jesus, and one of them is declared by Jesus. The first one we just celebrated, it was the announcement that the angel made to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 2. When the angel appeared to them and said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Awesome announcement, right? The last great announcement was on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, the women who followed Jesus' ministry, those that were closest to him, came to the tomb early that resurrection Sunday morning to finish preparing his body for burial. When they got there, they found that the stone, this giant massive circular stone, which had sealed the entrance to the tomb, had been rolled away. And when they looked inside, they saw two angels. And the angel said to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And then in between the two, we have one more great announcement. The announcement in Nazareth the one spoken by Jesus himself to officially begin his public ministry, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. Now let me just stop there. Before we look at the rest of that announcement, I want you to notice that Luke tells us in verse 16, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Here Luke tells us that not only did Jesus grow up in Nazareth, that while he was growing up also, though, it was his custom, or in other words, the practice of his, of his life, to attend the weekly synagogue services which took place on the Sabbath or on Saturday. These synagogue services seem to have come into existence during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Remember now how the Babylonians had sacked the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the city, the temple, and carried the remaining Jews captive to Babylon where they spent the next 70 years. Well, if you're a Jew, you're away from the temple now. There's no more temple. There's no more sacrifices. You want to honor God. You want to worship God. What do you do? They started to meet in small groups around Babylon where they began to focus on the scriptures because they had, the sacrificial system was over with at that time. And so they continued this practice until the Babylonian captivity ended. And then when they went back to Israel and repatriated the land, they continued these weekly Sabbath synagogue meetings. Even though the temple was eventually rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstated, they still continued these weekly Sabbath services. They became a very important part of Jewish life in those days. A typical Sabbath service, synagogue service, Open first of all, with an invocation for God's blessing, and then the resuscitation of the traditional Hebrew confession of faith, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verses 4 through 9, and repeated in chapter 11, verses 13 to 21. This was then followed by prayer, and then the prescribed readings from the Law and the Prophets, which were divided up, I forget if it was divided up over a course of a year or two years, but they had taken all the Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, and they divided them up into, we'll say, 52 parts. And every synagogue in all of Israel read the same Scriptures every week. So they all knew where they were going to be. And the idea was that over the course of a year or two, you went through the entire Law and Prophets. And this was then followed by a brief sermon, either given by one of the men of the congregation or perhaps maybe by a visiting rabbi. If a priest was present, the service closed with a benediction. Otherwise, one of the laymen prayed and the meeting was dismissed. Now, even before Jesus officially began his public ministry in Galilee, he had already been doing some preaching and teaching in the area of Judea, as we have said. And as such, he had gotten a reputation as a rabbi. Therefore, when he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, where he grew up, as a visiting rabbi, he was asked to do the reading for that day, read the portion of Scripture that uh, was uh, prescribed for that day, and then to give the sermon. And so he read the portion he read from included, now this wasn't all of it, uh, but it included the portion that we read in Luke 4. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. That was only a small part of it. In fact, that small part, those two verses, was what he picked to do his sermon about. Now, all the other rabbis in Israel believed that those verses that comes out of our Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, all the rabbis in Israel believed that those referred to the Messiah. And I'm convinced every Jew in the synagogue that day also believed that those verses spoke of the Messiah. And so when Jesus chose that passage for his sermon and finished reading these verses, verses that predicted and described the Messiah's ministry, it says in verse 20, Then he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now the rabbis would read standing up, read the scriptures. When they sat down, that was an indication they were not going to teach. They were not going to expound on what they had just read. So Jesus sitting down, now everyone knew he was about to comment or to teach on that passage. It says in Luke 4, verse 20, And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. A very intense word. They were fi- there was, the electricity of this moment must have been palpable. Must have been palpable. As word had been circulating for some time that Jesus might indeed be the prophesied Messiah. So you can imagine how shocked they were when Jesus finished reading from these verses and boldly declared in verse 21, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Now, I'm not going to get into the actual sermon he preached on that day. It's recorded in verses 23 to 27. I'll let you study that on your own. I will say this, it didn't end end so well. Not the kind of ending that a pastor wants for a sermon. They tried to kill him. I mean, you know. Uh, verses 28 and 29 talk about that. I'll let you get into that in your own. Don't get any ideas. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I, I want to focus on verses 18 and 19, which not only officially announce the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, but also, I think, become the mission statement of his earthly ministry. Let's look at this. We just kind of take it part by part. First of all, Jesus said, quoting from Isaiah now, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is upon me. 
This is a reference to something that happened after John the Baptist had finished baptizing Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. I'll just read the Luke passage. It comes out of chapter 3, verses 21 and 2. It says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, what? Upon him. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, we studied that a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. We looked at what water baptism signified, but we also saw there was another baptism that comes through. And that's what's called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the verses in the New Testament that talk about this. And it's always associated with a person receiving the power to begin or to do the ministry God's called him to do. Jesus himself said to his disciples, who already knew the gospel, who had walked with him for three and a half years, he said to them before he ascended back into heaven, he said, look, he said, you're not ready to go and preach the gospel yet, but go back to Jerusalem and wait until you're endued with power from on high. Now that was at the end of Luke's gospel. At the beginning of Acts, which overlaps a little bit, the end of the gospel of Luke, Jesus said in verse 8 of chapter 1 to his disciples, You shall re receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Just like the Spirit came upon Jesus, which anointed him to begin his public ministry. Jesus said, You also need to have the Spirit of God come upon you, in doing you with power from on high. And then you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus Christ did not begin his public ministry until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit and told his disciples they must not either until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelizo. We get our word evangelize and evangelical from that Greek word. And the word simply means good news. Good news. To us who are evangelicals, to preach the gospel means to declare the good news of salvation to the lost. It means that sinners, who are sinners? All the descendants of Adam. The Bible says all of us who are born into this world are born of Adam. When Adam fell, he produced a fallen race. All of us are born fallen sinners, condemned to spend eternity in hell, separated from God. But the good news is that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior could receive forgiveness of sins and not have to spend eternity in a place called hell. Now, when Jesus said, I've been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, it doesn't mean that the gospel is only for those who are financially destitute. Although I will say this, they are usually the ones that are most open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say it's easier for a rich man, for a camel, I should say, to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? Why? Well, I think J. Vernon McGee put his finger on it when he said, and I quote, The trouble is that when men have an abundance of this world's goods, they are so taken up with them that they are not concerned about spiritual riches. But it is the poor, the needy, the struggling, who love to hear the gospel message. When Jesus was here, the common people heard him gladly, end quote. So even though the gospel most appeals to the financially poor, as opposed to the rich, 
I really believe that Jesus had in mind the spiritually poor more than the physically poor. What do you mean? Well, you don't have to turn there. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks. But it's something that Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he wasn't talking about financially poor. He was talking about those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? Those who are broken of self-effort. Those who realize they are absolutely destitute to offer God anything that will earn their salvation. They know that they can't earn heaven. They know that they're completely lost, and there's nothing they can do about it. And so what do they do? They cry out to God for mercy and receive his son, Jesus Christ. See, proud people can't be saved. Proud people who think they deserve heaven. Proud people who think they're good enough to earn heaven can't be saved. You have to be poor in spirit, absolutely broken of self-effort and self-worth. Only those people will ever see the kingdom of God because only those people can really receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I really see in this that Jesus had in mind more the spiritually poor than he did the financially poor. He also said in verse 18, And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. I think when Jesus said this, he was acknowledging his divinity because only God can heal a broken heart. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He, speaking of God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Look, we live in a world populated by broken-hearted people. I mean, look around. Look at the devastation sin has caused. And remember, this is not the world God wanted us to live in. This is a world that's been polluted by rebellion, a world that is full of people who feel that, look, God's not going to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to live my life any way I want. And the result is broken lives, broken hearts. And the only hope for mankind is to receive Jesus into your heart because only he can heal a broken heart. And so the gospel becomes the prescription to cure a broken heart. You know, there's an old chorus that is attached to an old hymn that goes like this. It says, you've carried your burden, you've carried it long. Oh, bring it to Jesus, he's loving and strong. He'll take it away and your sorrows shall cease. He'll send you rejoicing with his heavenly peace. Now, folks, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that once you receive Christ, you'll never have heartache ever again. You'll never know adversity or trials. It simply means that, you know what? When Jesus lives in your heart, he is always there to heal that heart. As you turn to him and ask for grace and strength, he gives it to us. The heart is the starting point in salvation. That is the most important thing to understand. Our heart is the master control center of our lives. And so God is targeting the heart because of God... When God gets a hold of a heart, he gets a hold of a life. Salvation starts in the heart. That's why Paul says that we believe, we believe in our hearts, the Lord Jesus, and that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. It all starts in the heart, and then salvation works its way out into our lives in the form of righteous living, which comes as we walk with the Lord each day. All right, he goes on to say in verse 18, also his ministry was to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, this could be a reference, and no doubt it is in part, to those who are bound by Satan and the power of sin that are released from this bondage by believing in the gospel. You know, Paul the Apostle said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 26, admonishing Timothy and all believers, he said, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, 
knowing that they generate strife. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, patient, able to teach, in humility, correcting those in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape, listen, the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Sin has enslaved us as the human race. Everybody born into this world, as I've already said, has been born in Adam. In Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. And as such, we were all born in bondage to Satan and to sin. And the only one who can release us of that bondage is Jesus Christ, who sets the captives free, who gives us a new life. And so I do believe that's what Jesus had in mind when he said this, but I also believe it could be a reference in part to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4? He said, he's quoting now the Lord from the Old Testament who said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And this is speaking of Jesus now. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Paul says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? You say, well, what is all that about? Well, we looked at this in more detail in Ephesians 4, but let me just touch on it briefly. After Jesus died on the cross, three days later he rose from the dead. Before he ascended back to his Father, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth to a place called Hades, which is in the center of the earth, not to be confused with hell, which is in the outer darkness. But when he went down to Hades, he proclaimed freedom to those that were bound there, and he opened the prison doors, and he set the captives free. You say, I still don't get it. Well, let me just say this. There are people that will often ask me, what happened to the Old Testament believers before Jesus came? That's a good question. And Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 16 that those who died believing in God, believing in his word and his coming Messiah, like Moses, David, Abraham, and so on, all the Old Testament saints, when they died, their spirit and soul went into a place in the center of the earth called Hades, but into a very specific compartment of Hades known as Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was a place of paradise. It was a place of comfort. They were not tormented, but it was a prison. They couldn't leave there. Why couldn't they leave there? Because their sins had not been paid for. They couldn't go to heaven. This was a holding place where uh, the Old Testament saints stayed until Jesus died on the cross. Now, it was separated from another compartment by a great gulf like the Grand Canyon. The other compartment in Hades was where all the unbelievers went who died that had rejected God's promises, God's Messiah, and so on. They went to this place of torment where they are still to this day. Today, when any unbeliever dies, they go into this part of Hades, a place of torment, where they remain until the end of the millennial kingdom and Jesus establishes his great white throne judgment, and then they will be resurrected to stand before the Lord and give an account where they will then be cast into hell, the eternal place of torment for, the, uh, for all unbelievers. When Jesus died, before he ascended back into heaven, he first descended into Hades, went to Abraham's bosom, proclaimed Liberty to the captives. I have died on the cross. I have paid for your sins. He opened the prison doors. And when he ascended back to his father, he took all of these captives with him. Now, as a New Testament believer, remember what Paul said, when we die, 
To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So we don't go to that paradise side of Hades anymore. There's no need for it. Jesus has paid for our sins. So we go immediately, soul and spirit, into the presence of the Lord in heaven. Our body, which is of the earth, is going to return back to the dust of the earth when it dies, is buried. When the rapture happens, our body is resurrected, and we are reunited with our soul and spirit and spend eternity with the Lord from that point on in his kingdom. Just so you have a little frame of reference here to what uh, I believe could be in part what Jesus is claiming here, all right? When he said, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He went on to say, though, in verse 18, in recovery of sight to the blind. And no doubt this is a reference to both the physically blind and also the spiritually blind. We know that Jesus healed many who were physically blind on the earth. He healed them and gave them sight. In fact, if you go back into Isaiah 35, I believe, where it talks about Messiah's ministry, it talks about how he's going to give sight to the blind, and the dumb will speak, and the lame will walk, and so on. This was all an evidence that Messiah was, had come. When people saw him doing these miracles, they knew he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, which Jesus fulfilled. So he gave sight to many who were physically blind on the earth, but I think primarily he came to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, that they might see the truth and be saved. You remember when Paul the Apostle was recounting his call into ministry. He's talking to Agrippa, King Agrippa. And he's making his defense in uh, Acts 26. And he is giving Agrippa his testimony. And how he got saved. And how the Lord Jesus called him into ministry. At one point, he says, this is what the Lord said to me. Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, and here's what your ministry is going to encompass, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The idea is that, Paul, I'm sending you to preach the gospel, and when you do, those who are willing, those who have an open heart, they are going to receive it and their eyes are going to be opened. They're no longer going to walk around in spiritual darkness. They're going to have the light of life. They're going to understand the truth of God. They're going to know what God has prepared for them someday in heaven. It's all going to begin, though, as you preach the gospel, and their hearts are pierced, and as they receive the gospel, receive Jesus, then, of course, their eyes are going to be opened. When Jesus said, I have come to give recovery of sight to the blind, to open the eyes of the blind is tantamount to saying, I have come to seek and to save those who were lost. Same idea. I mean, we could all testify to that, right? I mean, you remember when you started hearing the gospel. It may not, it may not have been one time and you got saved. Maybe some, you know, goofball at work was working on you, you know? And every week this guy or gal is working on you, working on you, leaving you little tracks and so on, you know? You were aggravated, but you read some of this stuff, you know? And as you begin to read it, it made more and more sense. Until finally you prayed the prayer of salvation and your eyes were fully open, right? This is what the ministry is all about. The ministry of Jesus, he said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost, which is tantamount to saying, I have come to open the eyes of the blind but also to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. The Amplified Bible translates that to give freedom to those who are oppressed, which means who are downtrodden, bruised, crushed, and broken down by calamity. To give them freedom, to release them from this oppression. How? 
by replacing torment and oppression with peace and with hope. Peace right now and hope for heaven. A hope that there is coming a day when we're going to live with the Lord in a new kingdom. And there's going to be no more struggles, no more heartache or pain or sorrow or tears or death. No more injustice, no more deformity, no more sickness. It's going to be a paradise. And that is our hope. But right now the Lord gives us peace. Not that we are free from all negative circumstances. But He lives in our hearts. And we know that all things are working together for our good. Because we love God and are called according to His purpose. Only the Lord, though, can reach down and set people free who are tormented and oppressed inwardly. You know, I was just watching just about three days ago. In fact, I had just finished working on this message. And I came and I, I, I put the news on. And they had a segment where they were talking about this uh, aviator from World War II. I think his name was Louis. And Louis was quite a guy. I mean, he went on various uh, uh, missions and things, you know. And at one point, uh, his plane uh, malfunctioned. Uh, it was a few other guys in the plane. And they, uh, they crashed into the Pacific, and they survived. In fact, him and another guy survived and were on this rickety inflatable raft for like a month. Drifted 2,000 miles. Finally, they were picked up by a Japanese ship. And Louis, I don't know if the other guy died in the meantime, but Louis was taken to this horrific prison camp where he was tortured every day for two years. And he described some of this. I'm thinking, oh my God, what people do to other people. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And Louis said for two years, every day, he was, he was tortured, beaten. He was finally released when the war ended. And yet the demons didn't stop. He had flashbacks, he was tormented inside, he was oppressed, he got heavily into alcohol, he had a very loving wife, but even she had come to the end of herself and said, I, I just can't go on a little bit. If this doesn't change, I'm going to have to leave you. I can't deal with this. And then she or somebody invited Louis to hear a dynamic young preacher who was drawing a lot of large crowds wherever he preached. His name was Billy Graham. And Louis said, I went to hear this preacher and when he talked about Jesus Christ being able to give me peace, when he talked about Jesus coming into my heart and making me a brand new creation, not only forgiving my sins, but putting back together my life and so on, giving me peace, he said, I went forward and received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He said, ever since that day, I've had peace. The demons were gone, the torment was gone, the oppression was gone. Only Jesus Christ can really do that. You can take refuge in pills and bottles and so on, but it's not going to give you the peace. It's only going to mask the pain. Jesus Christ comes in and he gives peace to replace the pain. And finally, we read in verse 19. Jesus said, I have come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Many commentators have suggested that the phrase, the acceptable year of the Lord, is really a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is described in Leviticus 25. You don't have to turn there. But it's something that happened in Israel every 50 years. What is it? It was a reset of society. Every 50 years, Jewish society was reset. What does that mean? All your debts were forgiven. All the slaves went free. Because in Israel, if you owed somebody a debt and you couldn't pay it, you would have to 
put yourself in, into slavery to that person to work off your debt. So once every 50 years, all debts were canceled, all slaves went free, and all land, which had been sold, reverted back to its original owners because land was apportioned by God to tribes and families, and you could sell it, but not in perpetuity because it always belonged to God, and he gave it to certain families. And although you may have to sell it at times to pay a debt, when the year of Jubilee came, that land reverted back to its original owners. So everybody had a brand new beginning. It was a year of liberation and, of course, celebration. And if, in fact, Jesus did announce the beginning of his ministry in the year of Jubilee, listen, a ministry where he had come so that men and women could experience the forgiveness and cancellation of their debt that they owed God, the debt of sin, where they would be set free from their slavery to the devil, and the earth which was stolen by Satan, he's a usurper, by the way, the earth stolen by Satan would be returned to its rightful owner, which is God. Well, what more fitting time than the year of Jubilee to begin your public ministry? One final observation, and we'll close. When Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and it is a scroll, folks, not a book. I don't know why they translate a book. It's a scroll, okay? When Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he began to read from it, in those days, of course, the scriptures were not divided into chapters and verses, all right, as they are today. But if it had been, as we've already said, he would have turned to Isaiah chapter 61 and read verses 1 and 2. And after he read the text, he rolls up the scroll and is now about to expound on it. But the remarkable thing to understand is he broke off his reading in the middle of a sentence. Basically, he stopped at a comma. If you turn to Isaiah 61, I want to show you something. So as Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah that day, and he found the passage, which is our Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1, here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And yet the Lord left off that last part and read only as far as to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he said to the audience, Today... Is this, underlying this, scripture fulfilled in your hearing? Today wasn't just that day that he spoke uh, in the synagogue that day. It was a reference to his first coming. This day, the day of my coming, this scripture, not the last part of it, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The rest of the verse and the day of vengeance of our God would not be fulfilled until the wrath of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. You can read about that in Revelation chapters 6 through 19, a period that is often called the Day of the Lord, which um, chronicles the wrath of God being poured out upon those who have rejected Christ. Now, all of this will lead up to a second coming, which verse 19 in Revelation talks about, and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth, when the usurper will be cast out. Satan stole the earth from mankind in the garden. It was given to Adam and Eve, who were told by God to tend it, watch over it. Satan comes along, takes the form of a serpent, serpent, and he beguiles Eve, and she eats the forbidden fruit, gives to Adam, and he does eat. And they unknowingly, at that point, turn control of the world over to Satan, who is now the God of this world. But the year of Jubilee, 
the year that Jesus began his public ministry, where he proclaimed freedom to all those who were, have been taken captive by the devil, where all their sin, all their debt owed God could be forgiven. And someday, and he bought and paid for this at Calvary, but has not taken possession of the world yet, he will at his second coming. He came the first time to preach the gospel, the glorious message of salvation to mankind. As one author put it, and I quote, he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the dawning of a new era for this world, sighing, sobbing multitudes. He presented himself as the answer to all the ills that torment us. And it is true, whether you think of these ills in a physical sense or in a spiritual sense, Christ is the answer, end quote. And so we are still living in that wonderful day, the day of grace, when people still have a chance to believe the gospel, receive Jesus Christ, and again have their sins forgiven and be set free from the bondage of the devil. But hear me. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, quoting God now, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul said, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Very important point. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to expand on that idea. He quotes God again and said, where the Lord says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The Father speaking of the Son, who continues to preach the gospel through his church. And what the Lord is saying is, look, you only have a certain period of time to receive the gospel. I mean, nobody knows when their life is going to end. Tomorrow is not promised to anybody. James says, our life is like a vapor. It's here today and, go, today and gone tomorrow. So if God is speaking to you right now, if you have never really opened your heart to Christ, where you have never really said to him, Lord, I am a sinner. I know that. I violate your word, your commandments every day of my life. And I want to repent of all of that. I want to turn my life over to you. And I want you to take control. If you've never done that, then this is your opportunity. And if God is speaking to you, don't put it off till tomorrow because you may not get it tomorrow. That's the most important lesson to take away from this. There's a lot of people who wind up in hell for eternity who are not God-haters or atheists or agnostics. They're people that do believe in Jesus. They've grown up in a church maybe, but they just haven't really given Jesus Christ control of their life. They have head knowledge but they've never allowed Jesus to really take control of their life. And you know what they tell themselves? Someday, someday, I'm going to get right with God. I'm just too young right now. I want to, you know, have some fun first. But I want to get right with God someday. And at this very moment, there are no doubt thousands and thousands of people in Hades, in that torment side, screaming in absolute horror that they waited so long and their life ended and they never had a chance to get right with God. What a horrific scene that is. That's horrible to even contemplate, that a person could put off making a decision. You know, I was telling first service, I heard somewhere, it's a fictional account of Satan holding a meeting in the councils of hell one day and all his little demons around him. And he says, all right, how are we going to keep people away from God, away from Jesus? One demon says, well, I'll just tell them there is no God. Say, so ah, this isn't going to work. They know instinctively there's a God. Well, I'll tell them that there's no heaven. Ah, oh, most people believe in heaven. And one demon piped up, I know what I'll do. I'll tell them that they have time. That's going to work. 
You know, I was just talking to uh, one of our ushers. He was telling me about one of our other ushers who witnesses all the time and, and out in public witnessing. And he was with a, a group of Christians at a, um, I think it was in California, at a, uh, a bus station. And um, they were out witnessing. And this uh, gal walks by, a little older gal, and uh, her husband, I guess, was doing something with luggage or he was lagging behind. And so they began to talk with her about eternal life. And she started to get interested, you know. She started to listen. And they were getting through to her when suddenly her husband walks up and says, what are you, what are you doing? we got to go, you know. No, 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 I want to listen to what they have to say. Oh, it's all garbage, you know. And, but she insisted that she wanted to stay and hear what these men had to say. And so she did. He ah, walked away. Well, it was a bus station. So buses were parked, you know, end to end. And it was very narrow between these two buses that were parked one behind the other, he starts walking through this very, very narrow gap between the two buses, and another bus came at that very moment and smashed the one bus from behind, crushed him between the two buses, killed him instantly. If he had stopped to listen to the gospel, he would have been spared. No doubt physically, but also eternally. Hey, this is the day of salvation. Don't think, well, I've got time. Not necessarily. Paul said, this is the time. If you hear the gospel presented and you know that God is speaking to you about getting your life right with him, don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. And I encourage anyone here this morning who God is speaking to, you know how you've been living. You know that you haven't been living rightly. You know you've grown maybe in church. You've heard the gospel. You know what it's all about. You know who Jesus is and what he did and what he wants from you, but you're putting it off. Can I encourage you not to do that? Today is the day of salvation. This is a divine appointment, and God has brought you here for such a time as this to hear a message based on procrastination and not doing that. Come on up here after service so we can present the gospel more clearly to you so you understand what's involved and what you're going to do when you give your life to Christ. And we'll pray with you and give you a Bible. And you can leave here with your eyes open, as I did, as many of you did at one point, where our eyes were open and we saw for the first time what life was really all about. We were finally able to see the truth from all the lies of the devil. May God give you grace to make that decision. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your son who came from heaven, who left the glory that was his and the honor as the Son of God to come down to the earth and to become one of us so that he might eventually die in our place. And we just thank you, Lord. We celebrated yesterday. We celebrated the incarnation, Christmas. And we just thank you, Lord, for the greatest gift the world has ever received. How sad so many are rejecting it. They don't want it. They think that this life is going to be, make them more happy, that this is a better life than living for you and, and, and uh, receiving eternal life. Father, get a hold of their hearts, open their eyes, that they might see clearly that there is a horrible eternity that awaits for those who have rejected Christ, but for those who will humble themselves and bow the knee to Jesus, receiving him as Savior, Lord, well, there awaits glory unspeakable 
an inheritance that will never fade away, reserved in heaven for them. So we just praise you, Lord, for the hope that the gospel brings to us. And we just ask you, Lord, to give us grace to continue on in Jesus' ministry where he went into his world and preached the gospel to those he came in contact with. And we have been commanded to go into our world and to preach the gospel to those we come in contact with. Give us the grace, Lord, to do it faithfully and in the power of your spirit. Lord, we thank you now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.